Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of November 20th, 2017. On this week's show, Kevin Clark of The Ringer will join us to talk about the power and the glory of Nathan Peterman's five first-half interceptions for the Buffalo Bills on Sunday. We'll also talk about the outlook for second-year quarterbacks Carson Wentz, Dak Prescott, and Jared Goff. We'll also be joined by Damon Young. He's a senior editor at The Root. We'll talk about a couple of nominally basketball-related feuds, the first between Donald Trump and LeVar Ball about whether you should leave someone in a Chinese prison if that person's father isn't nice to you, the second between Mark Cuban and Draymond Green over whether you should call the boss of a sports team an owner. Finally, our Slate colleague June Thomas will be here for a conversation with record-breaking marathon swimmer Diana Nyad, who recently wrote a powerful op-ed for The New York Times titled My Life After Sexual Assault. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. I would watch a Family Feud episode with the Trumps and the Bulls. That would be Ratings good television. would be huge. Yeah. President would like that. You know what we're not going to talk about today, Josh? We're not going to talk about the fact that there were two scorigami in the NFL yesterday, which was very exciting. That's upsetting for you that we're not going to talk about that. Well, we're talking about it now. My condolences. And the Scrabble scandal from last week that broke after the taping of our podcast. Right. Big scandal. Every five years, sort of, there's a scandal. Cheating. Bad. Bad. Don't do it. Is that your your lesson for young Scrabble ears? Don't do it. On Sunday in Los Angeles, the Buffalo Bills rookie quarterback Nathan Peterman, making his debut as an NFL starter, threw an interception for a touchdown on his first drive of the game. Peterman then immediately ran back out on the field and threw another interception, unbowed. On the next Bills drive, LaShawn McCoy, who is good, ran twice for 64 yards and a touchdown. But then on the drive after that, Peterman threw another interception, his third of the first quarter. 
The next time the Bills got the ball, Peterman dropped back to pass on the first snap. Hold on. Did he throw an interception? He threw an interception. Get out! The Bills then went three and out on their next two possessions before Peterman threw an interception. At halftime, the Bills had seven points, the Chargers had 37, and Peterman was 6 of 14 for 66 yards with five interceptions. Peterman was starting for the Bills because coach Sean McDermott decided to bench Tyrod Taylor, who'd led them to a 5-2 and two start this year after the previous week's 47-10 to loss to the Saints. The Bills scored a few more points this week, losing 54-24, to but that was because Taylor came off the bench and scored a couple of touchdowns. After the game, McDermott said he needed to watch the film to decide who's going to be starting next week, saying, I'm going to make the decision that I feel is right for this football team. Joining us now to discuss what film McDermott might possibly need to watch, it's Kevin Clark. You can read his stories on The Ringer and listen to him talk on The Ringer NFL show. Hello, Kevin. Thanks for having me, guys. I feel bad, Kevin, for Nathan Peterman, but I think the analogy here is if we brought you on the show and you just spent the next 15 minutes projectile vomiting, and then I listen, <laughs> then I listen back to the tape, I was like, should we have that guy back on? I just, I need to listen to it really closely. So don't do that. And what was your, what was your take on Nathan Peterman, the Nathan Peterman experience? So the analogy I had when I was watching it was almost like the Brazil-Germany World Cup game a couple years ago where Germany scored six goals really quickly. And, and what I mean by that is I thought there was sort of an upper limit in professional sports about how much a rare event could happen. And that was with the interceptions. You just Every time you, when he got to three, you're like, well, that's the end of that. Then he gets to four, and then he gets to five. And you're just – I just didn't know – statistically that was even possible. I just thought in professional sports there was a baseline of quality you could have, and that's what stunned me. You know, I think that the thing that differentiates the NFL or is supposed to differentiate, differentiate the NFL from college is that you know, everyone there is a professional, and I think we <laughs> saw... I mean, it was almost like, if you've ever read like Paper Lion, the George Plumpton book, where he just goes out there and falls and loses 20 yards on, on one drive. Um, but Nathan Peterman played major college football, uh, I just didn't expect a sort of Plimpton-esque experience from a professional athlete. I'm familiar with Paperline. Um, also, yeah. you'd think that there was also a, a baseline level of of sympathy <laughs> on the part of a yeah. coach to not run this guy out there for the maybe fourth, but definitely not the fifth interception. Speaking of baseline level of sympathy, I was watching on Red Zone, and when he threw the fifth interception, I cheered because I was so excited. Well, because it's, like it's, the greatest it's a thing statistical I've seen anomaly, right? We're, gonna, <laughs> we're never going to see the likes of this again. You're sort of it's a car crash. You are you are staring at wonder with wonder at the at the, at the events of the happenings on, on that football field. But have we even mentioned Tyrod Taylor's name yet? I, I don't think we have. So Tyrod Taylor was the starting quarterback for the Buffalo Bills. He led the team to a 5-2 and two record. They lost a couple of games. And then he is benched because, what was the quote from, from head coach? Sean, Sean McDermott. McDermott. Uh, We're better just, than this? We're not a 5-4 and four team? I expect more? What exactly did he expect in Buffalo? I, where does this yeah, come I mean, from with NFL coaches? The hubris. It's crazy. I mean, people were talking about them tanking at the beginning of the year. They traded away Marcel Darius. They traded away Sammy Watkins. And all of a sudden, I mean, I just think it's, it shows you how, you know, how much these guys exist in a vacuum. All of a sudden, they win five games, and they think, oh, well, we're the good team now, instead of saying, oh, we got very, very lucky. 
Well, this is like a Brewster's Millions situation, maybe. Like, <laughs> maybe, maybe he was trying to lose on purpose, except um, Peterman was so bad that it just became too obvious, so he had to take him out. Like, if they were going into the season trying to tank and then they were five and two, you got to turn that around. If you, if you want to lose games, five and two is not going to cut it. Um, yeah, exactly. I'm curious, Kevin, um, for your thoughts on Taylor. Mina Kimes had a long story um, about the great Tyrod Taylor debate in ESPN the magazine a few weeks ago. That debate being um, that some people think that Tyrod Taylor is bad. And other things like statistics would indicate that he is, in fact, good. What is your take on whether Tyrod Taylor is, in fact, good or bad and uh, whether he was deserving to be treated this way? So I think a couple of things about Taylor. I think, first of all, at every turn, he's exceeded expectations. You know, I mean, obviously, the Baltimore Ravens signed Joe Flacco to a huge extension when Taylor was the backup, and so Taylor never had any chance to play there. But I think it's objectively true that Taylor would be a better quarterback for the Baltimore Ravens than Joe Flacco, who at this point is a bottom-five starter. But that was never even a discussion. So you already have that. Then he goes to Buffalo, and the, Ryans, the Rex Ryan gives up on him. And, you know, he, he's, already, he's not a high draft pick. He's not, well, we should, um, we should know, interject there. He went to Buffalo and had to compete for the starting job. Like, he won an open right. competition and right. was great and got a big extension before Ryan gave up on him. Exactly, exactly. So he, he, he was extremely good for – he exceeded expectations again, again, in, uh, in Buffalo. He was signed to a contract that is as bizarre a quarterback contract as you can possibly have, which is essentially um, the team picks up large chunks as they go along with not a lot of guaranteed money. So that's, that's number one. Um, Tyrod's already sort of um, – the, the, the deck is stacked against him already contractually because, first of all, so much of NFL decision-making is based on contracts. The reason Joe Flacco has a job for life in Baltimore is because they can't get out of his contract until 2019, so they just have to figure it out, right? The Bills, when they signed Tyrod Taylor, they allowed themselves room to kind of you know, screw around with Taylor, as they are now, and so they're using that, 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 that leverage that they have. And so, you know, the, the Ryans give up on him despite the fact that he is a good quarterback. And then McDermott inherits him, decides to go with Taylor again. And for some reason, they decide, okay, he's not going to be back next year. We're going to take a look at Nathan Peterman. There are good quarterbacks in the draft next year. Let's decide what we have. The problem with that plan is they were literally in a wild card spot heading into Sunday. I mean, you just, you cannot do that in the NFL. And that's what's so stunning about this whole situation. If this were... You know, if this were a team that was, was 1-9, and nine, if this were the, the, the 49ers, this is a totally different situation. But the fact they're doing this to Tyrod Taylor, and now, essentially, Nathan Peterman has probably cost them any chance they had at the wild card. I want to say two things here. It is a classic coach move. Coaches who yep. are so full of themselves that they always think that they have to do something and yep. that whatever they are doing is the right thing to do. I read a couple of quotes from Sean McDermott after the game, and look, it's coach speak, but it is so indicative of the mentality. Every decision I'm making in the right is in the right and best interest of this football team. The decision that I feel is right for this football team. It reminded me of when I did my Plimpton thing, Kevin, when I was in Denver, and right. the season I was there, Mike Shanahan benched uh, Jake Plummer when the Broncos were 7-4 and four in favor of Jay Cutler, who was a rookie at the time. 
And he literally said, I'm doing what I think is in the best interest of the football team and will help this football team win games for this football team. And they didn't make the playoffs either. So that's the one is the, the sort of the overlay of the coach is smarter than everybody. And I've got to do something to, to, to make a change. But the second part here is that the, that you have to wonder why is Tyrod Taylor being treated differently? Um, might it have something to do with his perception as a quarterback because he's a black quarterback? Maybe. Um, you know, it, it's really interesting. So th- there's a couple of things that, that go into this, in my opinion. Number one is his draft stock, the fact that he wasn't, you know, you know, the f- people look at Blaine Gabbert still has a job in the NFL because he was a, uh, selected in the top half of the first round. I think draft position has a lot to do with it. I think that, you know, the fact that Tyrod plays um, a bit of a, you know, I, a lot of people, a lot of the, the, the tape specialists around the NFL um, have said that he plays more of a freelancing style. But that's, that's sort of everybody. I mean, half the league plays a freelancing style. So I don't know if race comes into it with McDermott. I think that race comes into it when you're analyzing, when, when people are analyzing the players. I think that they, mm-hmm. um, Taylor gets, gets dinged for some things that everyone does. Oh, he drops his eyes too quickly and starts to run with the ball. Well, you know, the same can be said of Andy Dalton in some situations, but no one, no one talks about Andy Dalton in that way. And so I think that it's just a, um, because he has a tendency to play, uh, you know, outside the pocket a little more, he just gets a little, a little more scrutinized than a, a normal quarterback would. I don't know. I mean, I think with McDermott, I don't know what his thought process is, but I just know that Tyrod, for whatever reason, is not judged as a, uh, in the way that every other quarterback is. Did anyone notice that LaShawn McCoy on Wednesday said this when he was asked about Nathan Peterman? You just never know. That's why I really can't give you an honest answer. Like, he's going to go out there and he's going to be dominant. He's going to throw four or five touchdowns. Or is he going to go for five picks? LaShawn Stradamus. It's it's amazing, guys. You know, um, I was making some jokes about Nathan Peterman on Twitter yesterday, and I was getting like interaction from NFL players that I've never gotten before. Like, no, none of my jokes ever register with NFL players, but like one one guy sticks out in particular. You know, Jermaine Effetti, who's who's the Seahawks offensive lineman, like liked one of my tweets where I'm making fun of Nathan Peterman. And so, like, I think a lot of people around, a lot of players around the NFL almost saw this as offensive that you would just take. A guy like Tyrod Taylor bench him in the middle of a wild card race and and you know replace him with a guy like Nathan Peterman who is as bad as anybody. So I think this was almost for NFL players. This was it was almost sort of like a tipping point in a lot of ways. Even Richard Sherman tweeted about it as well. So they these guys were active on social media, just voicing their displeasure. Well, it was very funny. And 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 you have to sort of maybe think that this is part of a continuum here. These are players that are not happy that Colin Kaepernick isn't in the NFL. And then another African-American quarterback gets benched uh, for no apparent good reason. And his name is also Nathan Peterman. And as our (laughs) former colleague, as our former colleague, uh, Mike Pesca posited on this podcast once, you're not going to be a great quarterback if your name is Blake Bortles. And I think Nathan Peterman falls into that category. I can't remember who it was, but one of the people in the, Chargers secondary who was playing against Peterman said after the game literally that they took it as an insult that they chose to put him in the game it's like as a coach that's maybe an indication that you're not making a move that's in the best interest of the team if the team you're playing is actually offended by how bad the player is 
that you're putting in that you like think that you can like sneak them in there and get a win? Right. We talk about bulletin board material, and it's always like, oh, don't say this, don't talk this trash. But literally, the lineup was bulletin board material. As Mina pointed out in her piece, if you account for running, like if <laughs> obviously running is an incredibly important thing that quarterbacks can do and some do better than others. And Tyrod Taylor does it better than any other quarterback in the NFL. But if you like, don't consider running to be part of his job, which is insane. But if you don't, then he's not actually in the top half of NFL quarterbacks. If you do, and like by ESPN's QBR, whatever you think of it, like if you do consider it, he's like in the top 10 of NFL quarterbacks. But the thing that I thought was so telling was if you look at um, like Aaron Schatz was pointing out on Twitter, like when I, um, you know, said that the Bills weren't giving Taylor a fair shake, just like look in my mentions. So I went back and looked and every Bills fan in his mention was Tyrod Taylor is terrible. Tyrod Taylor is awful. Right. Look he at the sucks. quotes in Mina's story. He sucks. He checks the ball down. We hate him. You've got to replace him. And I think some of that maybe has to do with race, he whispers, but like, you know, some of it is just like the contempt for the like starting quarterback of a team that like hasn't gone to the playoffs since the literal 1990s. Um, it's all like bound up together, but like I'm sure the Bills fans aren't happy with uh, Mr. Uh, Nathan Peterman. They were today very either. excited about Peterman playing, though. I mean, look at the quotes in Mina's profile. Tyrod blows, one fan at a bar <laughs> said. He can't throw the ball far enough. Uh, Taylor is no better than draft bus EJ Manuel. They're the same quarterback, this guy says. <laughs> His companion size. She's partial to rookie backup Nathan Peterman, a pocket passer selected in the fifth round, and she wants Taylor to sit. He hasn't done anything for us the last couple of years. Everybody loves the backup says. quarterback until he throws five interceptions. I want to um, transition to um, Carson Wentz, Dak Prescott, Jared yep. Goff. Wentz looked amazing um, on Sunday night. They just blew blew out the Cowboys. Um, they're nine and one. And everybody is talking about Wentz like he is the next big thing, sort of like Dak Prescott was last year. Um, Kevin, what do you make of this class of second year guys? And do you think, is it fair to just say they're all really great? Or are do you see them as like being on different levels? So it's interesting to me because Dak Prescott was put into perhaps the greatest situation in the history of rookie quarterbacks <laughs> last year. And Carson Wentz, they sort of switched places in that regard. Carson Wentz was not. Carson Wentz didn't have Lane Johnson for 10 games last year. He had a receiving core that is as bad as some people in the NFL have ever, ever seen last year. So As bad as both- Colin Kaepernick had for the 49ers. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so, you know, they switched this year. Uh, the Eagles go out and they get some really talented pieces in offense. On the other side, Tyron Smith, who's the best left tackle in the NFL, has been out for, for the Dallas Cowboys. Um, Ezekiel Elliott obviously has been out for the last two weeks and will be for the next four weeks. And so they've sort of switched places, and you can see it. I think that this, the, the golden age of quarterbacks, um, and what I mean by that is Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, Drew Brees, that generation sort of spoiled us because they were able to do anything at any time, almost independent of cast. We're not going to have that with the next generation. I think that they're, they're a notch below, and so they're going to be more dependent on the cast, and that's what you see this year. So both Dak Prescott and Carson Wentz are really, really good quarterbacks, but they're not going to be able to do it in a vacuum. Um, Ed Werder did a poll, and he um, 
found like seven out of eight anonymous GMs said that they would take Wentz because he's better as a pocket passer. Um, is that just racist or is there actually some um, statistical backup to that, Kevin, that Wentz is better in the pocket than Dak Prescott? No, there, there's, there's not really a lot of evidence for that. So Dak, in a weird way, is another player who has been underestimated at every turn. I spoke to Stephen Jones, who's, who's Jerry's son, who's the COO of the Cowboys, in, in, uh, right before the season started, the, uh, the 2017 season, and, and he was telling me that, um, that Dak Prescott was below on their draft board, below a guy named Connor Cook, who played for Michigan State. And Connor Cook is objectively terrible, and but the Cowboys had him low on their draft. Prescott low on their draft board because Cook had played in a pro-style offense, and Dak Prescott had played in a spread offense. And that is sort of the um, that is sort of the guidepost for all quarterback evaluation now is who played in a spread and who played in a pro-style. And the number of pro-style quarterbacks continue to dwindle at the college level. And we're saying pro-style in quotes, obviously, because a lot of it is just um, you know made-up jargon, but. You know, so you you look at Dak Prescott, and people still see him as a spread quarterback, a running quarterback, and they're just completely a misunderstanding the offense he came from in college, and b they're underestimating or ignoring the stuff he's already done at the NFL level, and so it is insane how old world and old NFL and and Wentz played in a spread as well. I mean, it's cra- it's crazy. It, it, it's it's it, I do think there is. In in some of those situations, especially with the you know the oh he's a pocket passer kind of anonymous scout stuff, I, I do think racism creeps into that. And Russell Wilson was picked in what the fourth round, Dak Prescott in the third yeah. round. Um, so it is hard to know, but it, it but the point you're making about how these athletes are evaluated while they're in college and how much is based on what they were asked to do by their college coaches has an impact. I mean, Jared Goff though did play in a spread offense in right. California too, didn't he? Yeah, almost everybody does. I mean, almost every single – I mean, Alabama plays a spread now in a lot of ways. And so when you say someone is a spread quarterback, unless it's Baylor. Baylor is the outlier, you know, especially the Art Bryles teams because, you know, their offense is so simple you couldn't you, – you can't take anybody. For, uh, you couldn't take a Bryce Petty, you know, for, for, from that kind of offense. But I think that the, the vast majority of quarterbacks are all the same coming out now. And so if you say, oh, so-and-so is a spread guy, that's code for something else. Kevin Clark writes about the NFL for The Ringer. He is also a podcaster on The Ringer NFL show. Kevin, thank you very much for not projectile vomiting on our show. We'd (laughs) love to have you back. All right. Thanks so much, guys. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. In a moment, Damon Young will be here to talk about a couple of basketballish things in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members. Damon will be back and he'll chat with us about the Boston Celtics hot start, 15 wins in a row for Brad Stevens 
and Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum and Kyrie Irving, et cetera. That is a lot of wins. To hear that conversation, please join Slate Plus for just $35 a year. If you do, you can get a Slate tote bag and you can get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. Two weeks ago now, three UCLA basketball players, Cody Riley, Jalen Hill, and LiAngelo Ball, the brother of Lonzo and the son of LeVar, were detained in China for allegedly shoplifting sunglasses from a Louis Vuitton store. We've all done it. Uh, the players who were in China for a game between UCLA and Georgia Tech first went to a police station. They were taken there in uh, Hangzhou, then stayed in the Hyatt Regency for a week while their case was resolved. Donald Trump, coincidentally, was in China to meet with President Xi Jinping. And according to Trump, at least, he put in a good word with Xi to help the players get released. On November 15th, Trump openly wondered on Twitter, do you think the three UCLA basketball players will say thank you, President Trump? They were headed for 10 years in jail. Then when the players did thank him at a press conference, he wrote, to the three UCLA basketball players, I say, you're welcome. Go out and give a big thank you to President Xi Jinping of China, who made your release possible, and have a great life. You're really not getting the full picture if you're not seeing the capitalization and punctuation here. But um, he then said, be careful. There are many pitfalls on the long and winding road of life. Very poetic. Damon Young, senior editor at The Root, is going to join us now, and then we'll fill you in on the rest of the story, Paul Harvey style. What's up, Damon? Hey, what's going on? So LeVar Ball then chimes in at this point, as he does, and says, who, in reference to Donald Trump, what was he over there for? Don't tell me nothing. Everybody wants to make it seem like he helped me out. And then Trump adds on Twitter, now that the three basketball players are out of China and saved from years in jail, LeVar Ball, the father of LiAngelo, sounds like biblical, how he's referring to him as the father of LiAngelo, <laughs> is unaccepting of what I did for his son and that shoplifting is no big deal. I should have left them in jail. Shoplifting is a very big deal in China, as it should be, five to ten years in jail. But not to Father LeVar. Should have gotten his son out during my next trip to China instead. China told them why they were released. Very ungrateful. 280 characters is a real problem. You thought that, it would, I, that the 280 characters would make him more like legible and understandable, but not really. Yeah, I. you know what? This, this is a really side tangent right now, but the 280 characters, I think, is the worst thing to happen <laughs> to Twitter ever because it makes Twitter like better for people like me. And it shouldn't be for people like me. It should be for people who are able to get those witty and pithy thoughts down in 140 characters. Um, but what about the parenthetical five to 10 years in jail? He might not have been able to fit that in before. We need we need to know yeah, that's true. how long they would have been rotting in prison if not for the uh, magnanimous and beneficent, great, glorious leader of our nation, Donald Trump. You know, this this whole situation, like, like everything with Donald Trump and even everything with LeVar Ball is just like absurd. And, um, and, and, and it's funny just looking at the reaction from Trump and the fact that, you know, he, he needs perpetual genuflection. And if he doesn't receive that, especially if he doesn't receive that from people of color and women, then that really seems to piss him off. 
But um, my biggest takeaway from all of this is that LeVar Ball won. Like he he got he trolled Trump and to, and made Trump say his name, made Trump say his son's name, the middle son who, you know, all due respect, isn't the same level of prospect as um, Lonzo and and the youngest son. Um, you know, and now Lonzo, Levar Ball's name, Leangelo Ball's name, those are internationally known now, internationally relevant. Like Sarah Huckabee Sanders is probably answering a question right now at a press conference about Levar Ball. Um, and so yeah, Levar Ball won, won, won this. He out trolled the world's biggest troll. And yet we all feel like we need a seven-hour shower after this um because this is you know hobson's choice sophie's choice morton's fork which one is it i don't know but our options here all suck but you know i think we're all inclined to agree with you that lavar ball got the better of this not only Mm -hmm. because he got the president to say his name and his son's name but he's also uh, but trump effectively steered the attention away from what these kids did and the potential, mm-hmm. the potential consequences of what they did. Now it's a story about Donald Trump trolling the balls and the balls and the Trump going back and forth as opposed to, oh shit, these kids really fucked up and their college basketball careers should be in jeopardy. Should they be in jeopardy? Well, Come on, dude. They stole four hundred dollars um, glasses allegedly. I don't know. Might be in jeopardy. It's not like they stole a poster I, from North Korea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know what? I, I I think that you know, like a five or ten game suspension is is probably sure. um it's probably an appropriate punishment for for what happened. They and, are and also eighteen years just old. The fact, yeah, and also just the fact that it, it's brought so much negative publicity. Like if this wasn't in the news. Um, I'm thinking you're probably looking at maybe three games, mm-hmm. if even that. But because this is a thing now, five to ten. Can we? So listen? they'll be back. They'll be back once the once the once the um, conference play starts. Well, but if they had been criminally convicted, either in China or in Los Angeles, of doing this, then what? I mean, this is you know this was not a good look for for UCLA, oh, obviously. Not. Yeah, it, it's not a good look, and and you're right. You know, Levar, Levar Ball took the attention off of off of what they did, and now it becomes why is Donald Trump pinpointing and picking on these three college kids and their dad? And and again, it, it makes you you know, even though as as I stated the last time I was on this podcast, that you know I'm not a I'm not a big Levar Ball fan. There is a spectrum of fuck shit. And he is at like the, the the shallow end of that spectrum, whereas Donald Trump, you know, he's like swimming in a vat of it. So, you know, there's there's an obvious choice to, to you know who to root for here. So let's listen to what Steve Kerr had to say. The Warriors coach was asked about this spat, and um, coming out of that, I will have a, a thought on the fuck shit spectrum. Modern life, pe- people, you know. <laughs> to people seeking attention and they're both getting it. And so I'm sure both guys are really happy. <laughs> you know what would help if you if if all of you just stopped covering both of them. Is that possible? We could probably you could probably stop covering Lavar 
I don't think he can stop covering. You don't want the president. I don't think that'll work. He might be everywhere. It would be nice for all of us if, if both of them would just be quiet. Wouldn't that be great? So like Damon said, there is actually an argument in favor of LeVar Ball. Like Scott Brooks, the Wizards coach, made it. Um, Brooks said, like, you know, my dad wasn't around when I was a kid, and I would have loved to have a parent who is as involved as LeVar Ball is. You can certainly quibble, and we have, with LeVar Ball's choices as a parent. But, you know, Damon's point about the spectrum is right. Like, he's not, like, the worst person in the world. Like, he loves his kids. He cares about his kids. He's, like, really involved in their lives. Like, Donald Trump is the worst person in the world. And so it's super telling to me that someone like Steve Kerr, who I don't want to speak for, you know, both of you guys, but like he generally is incredibly like wise and has the correct opinions about things that he would come out of this and say the story is that LeVar Ball and Donald Trump are both bad. Just seems like incredibly weird and wrong to me that like what LeVar Ball did was like essentially troll Donald Trump and we've all done it. And we, I think we all should continue to do it and defend his child. And what Donald Trump did is say that if like a black kid and a, his black father don't genuflect to me, like Damon said, then he should be in a Chinese prison for five to 10 years. Or it's until like, I decide to go release him. That is just like incredibly strange sick. that it's but, sick. but that it's become a story of like man, Lavar right. and Donald are both so bad. Yeah, I I I, I agree that Steve Kerr usually um, you know gives very nuanced and insightful takes about about sports and about politics, and I you know this 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 was pretty bad. Um, you, you don't there's there's no equivalent between LeVar Ball and Donald Trump. I mean, they're both blowhards, but the, and that's where it ends. That That's where the comparison ends, and they're both tall, <laughs> I guess, too. Um, but, but aside from that, um, yeah, you, they're, they're not on the same plane. I mean, LeVar Ball is annoying. Donald Trump is getting people killed. LeVar Ball is annoying in a sports talk radio way. Yeah. He's annoyed us with his pomposity, his over-the-top expectations and pronouncements about his, about his children, um, the way he has tried to trash talk or mention people like Michael Jordan, and I could have beaten him one-on-one, -on -one, or Steph Curry, or LeBron even. Um, and that's your sort of, you know, run-of-the-mill sports radio, Skip Bayless fighting type stuff that we should mm -hmm. let roll off our backs. Matt Iglesias yeah, made I, an interesting point on uh, Twitter the other day is that like people put the the ball thing and then like Trump, it's like an assembly line for him. Like Marshawn Lynch of the Raiders this morning, stands for the Mexican, Mexican anthem and sits down to booze for our national anthem. Great n disrespect. Next time NFL should suspend him for remainder of season. Attendance and ratings way down. It's like next impudent black athlete. Come on down for like uh, me to criticizing it on a Twitter feed. But back to the Matt Iglesias point, it's like people say, oh, this is just like fan service for the racists in his base. But the point that Matt made is like, Trump is actually just racist. Period. Like, you don't need to say that he's just like doing this to make the racists that voted for him happy. Like the, one of the most consistent things in his record going back to like 
the 70s. The 70s, like his father, his yeah. father, like the Central Park Five. Dude is just racist, and you you don't need to like be like that much more nuanced than that. Yeah, these are you know the the these tweets and and again bringing up Marshawn Lynch from from just this morning. These are clear dog whistles to to his base, and and you could say that they're dog whistles to himself, <laughs> to that he's that he's uh, looking in the mirror and and repeating this stuff to himself. Um, just to, just to, I don't know, energize himself. And it's funny how ungrateful has become a word like thug or inner city or urban or even Chicago that has become like the stand in for the N word where, you know, you can't say that, but you could say things that, that kind of circle and, and imply that, um, without actually coming out and saying that. And, and so, yeah, a guy like Marshawn Lynch doing what he does and LeVar Ball um, being LeVar Ball that, you know, again, that's like, that's chum for for Trump's base and for Trump himself. And I think this will help us transition to our next topic of conversation. But one of the reasons I always suspected that Donald Trump wanted to be an owner in professional sports was so that he could feel like an owner of people. And of African-American athletes, that he could admire these prized physical specimens um, mm-hmm. and have dominion over them. So Bob McNair said this was reported in the Don Van Natta and Seth Wickersham ESPN story. McNair, being the owner of the Houston Texans, said in a meeting, we can't have inmates running the prison referring to NFL players. Um, Draymond Green responded to that on Instagram calling it Donald Sterling-esque. And he said, as part of that comment, let's stop using the word owner and maybe use the word chairman. This set off Mark Cuban, the owner of the Mavericks, maybe the chairman of the Mavericks, saying that uh, Draymond Green hadn't taken business classes in Michigan State. And so maybe he didn't understand what owning equity in a company Meant and just saying that uh, Draymond owes the NBA an apology. Uh, what did you make of that whole exchange, Damon? All right, Mark Cuban. You know, as far as we're going to use this word "owner" just as a stand-in, um, as far as professional sports owners go, he is, you know, probably at the favorable end of the spectrum in terms of you know what he does for his players, what he does for his team, even his politics, perhaps. Um, but what he but what he said um, about about Draymond Green and about this, you know, is completely insensitive to to the context and the nuance behind that term. Where even if you know Draymond might might have technically been, been wrong, he, he wasn't. But even if he was, I think that you know Mark Cuban should have at least acknowledged, you know, I guess that semantic pickle where that word is a word that is racially charged. Um, and, and the fact that calling yourself an owner and you own this team and you, you introduce yourself, you know, as the owner of these players. I mean, that is weird. Like, even though that's what we've been calling it, that is a very weird, um, way to phrase it. And it was really condescending for Cuban to just come out and basically denigrate green's intellect. And, and, you know, just say, he well, he doesn't understand this term. He doesn't understand what ownership is. He doesn't understand what equity means. And Draymond Green, you know, he, he is a pretty astute guy. And even if he wasn't, it still would have been condescending 
to to imply that and to say that. Um, and and it's again, it's one of those situations where you just can't you you can't um, minimize like the racial optics here. Where again, I I am a I won't say that I'm a Mark Cuban fan, but I don't have any like really bad things to say about him. But I do wonder if he would have said the same thing about, I don't know, Jeremy Lin, if he would have came out and said the same thing. Um, Jeremy Lin, you know, who went he to Harvard. The same language. Yeah. <laughs> so here is what Draymond Green said at Harvard. The best clip that I could find online, it like starts in the middle of his response, but you'll basically get where he's coming from. Let's listen to that clip. To turn on the TV and see what, what happened in Charlottesville. He'll never have that feeling. So when I say, hey, maybe we shouldn't use that word, to be honest, I really don't expect him to understand where I'm coming from because he'll never feel what I feel. What this all reflects is Mark Cuban's inability to understand, as Draymond Green was alluding to, what it is like to be someone else. And Cuban is this self-made billionaire, came from nothing, but he's also completely full of himself. His politics may be okay, but at his core, he is a know-it-all bro. And what he revealed here is an inability for all of the good things that he's done for all of these players, African-American and otherwise, on his team. And as well as he treats them and as good as a franchise as he's created, what this revealed is a at its core, a flaw, an inability to hold your tongue for 30 seconds and say, you know, I've never thought about that this way. Draymond Green understands ownership and equity and business. Mm-hmm. Um, and for Cuban not to acknowledge that is just rude. It's insulting to Draymond Green's intellect and to Draymond Green as a human being, not as a basketball player. Um, And that's what this showed me, that here's this white tech bro who wasn't able to to step out of his box and and appreciate someone like Draymond Green's feelings and to reconsider the use of this word, even on an intellectual level, even just to have a conversation about it. He shut him down instantly. Yeah, and just to to clarify what I what I what I said earlier when I when I was talking about Cuban, you know, bringing back the point of the spectrum, on the, on the ownership spectrum, he is at the favorable end, I, I would say, in terms of professional sure. sports teams owners, but in terms of just a citizen, and, and a citizen that has some sort of empathy and is able to step outside of himself and his own experiences and and try to relate or understand what, you know, where someone who doesn't have the same experience is coming from, then yeah, he, you know, he is your stereotypical tech bro. Yeah, um, don't, don't demand you know, an apology. First, like yeah. listen to what someone has to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of the um, characteristics of this, of this stereotypical tech bro is that they believe they know everything and are smarter than everyone. And, and this is an instance where even if, you know, perhaps Cuban doesn't understand or doesn't agree, you don't actually have to say anything. You could just not, not, you know, it, it, it shutting the fuck up is free. You, you don't have to speak on everything. You don't have to offer an opinion. You don't have to offer a take on every subject. 
Um, and, and again, that, that willingness and that, that compulsion to always have an opinion and always make themselves the smartest person in the room is, you know, that is synonymous with the type of I thought Andre Godala's comments were really interesting on this. He was talking to ESPN's Chris Haynes and saying that Cuban carries himself with integrity, with respect, with equality to everyone who's involved with the organization. And so he's, he says, I understand that Cuban feels he has to defend himself, but at the same time, he's not able to understand what it's like to be an African-American. And so the way that Iguodala framed it made me uh, realize that Mark Cuban is like hashtag not all owners. Um, <laughs> he's like, I'm one of the good ones. I wear but, t-shirts. But it's like what Damon was saying. He wasn't talking to you. You don't have to respond what Cuban has shown here, he's talked about considering running for president in 2020. This is like definitely on his demo reel that like he has, he has to be right about everything and um, everything is about him. So he's obviously a leading candidate to be president of this uh, dumb country of ours. But um, just the, the notion that like as somebody who's like kind of implicated in this, you just have to like stand up and just like shout the person down rather than listening and trying to understand where they're coming from is just like so endemic to people like Mark Cuban. And, and that is, I think all I have to say about that. Damon Young, senior editor at the root. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is the deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Diana Nyad swam around Manhattan in 1975 when she was 26 and swam from Cuba to Florida in 2014 when she was 64. In between, she wrote books, broadcast sports, talked on public radio, and started businesses. Now 68, Nyad last week wrote an op-ed in the New York Times in which she described being sexually abused for years by her high school swim coach. I don't paint my youth as tragic, Nyad wrote, yet I spent every day of my high school years terrified that it would be yet another day that he would summon me after practice for a humiliating ride in his car or a disgusting hour in the motel down the street. I wasn't studying with my friends. I wasn't home with my family. I was clenching my teeth, squeezing my legs tightly together, waiting to breathe again. And I was silent, always silent. Diana Nyad joins us now. Diana, thanks for coming on the show. Stefan, Josh, June, pleasure to be with you guys. You jumped me there. June Thomas is also with us. June is the <laughs> managing producer of Slate Podcasts and one of the hosts of the Double X Gab Fest. Hey, June. Hey, thanks for having me. Diana, this wasn't the first time that you've spoken about this. In fact, uh, you've been talking about it privately for almost 50 years and publicly since the late 1980s. You talked about it at your swimming hall and hall of fame induction, and you talked about it in an affidavit in connection with an attempt to have that coach, a hall of fame swimming instructor named Jack Nelson, to have him removed from a publicly funded job in Florida. Why was it important to talk about it again now when so many other women are coming forward for the first time in and out of sports? 
Well, you know, clearly uh, Pandora's box has been blown its lid off. My job is to try to, uh, the way I look at it, is to try to educate, illuminate, motivate the public at large to see if we can make sure that the next generations of swimmers and gymnasts and actresses and daughters, and I don't mean to, you know, dwell on women because boys are molested as well. I'm not going to forget them, but there's a lot of misogyny. There's a lot of violence against women and a lot of sexual violence against women, a lot, an epidemic of it in this country. So that's where I'm at. And once the Weinstein thing started and Pandora's box blew out and everybody started, I thought, yep, you know, it's ironic. I never could get that guy the, the, the whole system protected him very, very well, more than it did us, the victims. But what I'm going to do is help change the fabric of this culture of ours. I'm going to help change it. When, when I was reading the New York Times piece that uh, you wrote last week, I was really struck by how you talked about um, how your personality was just transformed once your coach began abusing you, that you became Uh, what you called a solitary soldier. And, you know, I couldn't help but note that you became famous and shattered records uh, for an endeavor that was intensely solitary, that sure requires a support team, but which requires you to be immensely self-sufficient and self-motivating for astonishing lengths of time to push your body, um, to essentially to dissociate in in a strange way. And... um, I'm not in any way suggesting that, you know, what this what your coach did to you was good for you, because clearly this kind of abuse is not there's nothing positive about it. However, I'm wondering, like, did it, in fact, help you achieve your goals? And if so, how did that complicate your healing? Well, you know, June, I I, will never know the answer to those questions, will we? True. No, no, no. Saying, well, you know, you grew up in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, which is a mecca of world-class swimming. You know, I, I had I had uh, uh, retired Olympians around me everywhere. I swam at the International Swimming Hall of Fame. I'm in a climate, you know, where it's, it's beautiful and 75 to 85 degrees every day of the year. Um, you know, swimming was the milieu. I was in the ocean. Right. You know, the Cuban right. Revolution broke out. My mother looked across the ocean with me and I said, Mom, where's Cuba? Where's that forbidden place that all our friends come from? And she said, it's right there. It's right over the horizon. As a matter of fact, you, you little nine-year-old swimmer, you could almost swim there. So... I tell you something, June, I would love to find out who I would have been without all that molestation. Please, let's go back and do it over and take all that away. And let's see if I wouldn't have been the same champion. I guarantee you I would have. The thing that I found so powerful and moving about your story in The Times, Diana, was um, just this notion that sports can be so empowering for young women, and you have done so much to inspire um, women with your achievements. And then just what this coach did to you and what, um, you know, Larry Nasser, for example, did to all of these young gymnasts is you take something that should be so empowering, and then you end up abusing these girls and women, abusing their trust and kind of teaching them the like exact opposite lesson that we should be teaching women from sports is that like we only care about you as a a body we don't care about you as an individual and we don't want you to really 
grow and and become something. And that's sort of what the the real sadness of this was for me in reading it. You know, the New York Times um, had a huge, I, I would I'd venture to say, a tsunami of response to this op-ed piece. And when you read through them, they had to cut it off after 24 hours. But there were a thousand people who responded, yeah. almost all of them with the same story. My stepfather here, my coach here, my, my brother here, my grandfather. And when I was 18 months old until I was 11, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, it's, it's all of, you know, it's an epic epidemic of people taking advantage of their power, their control, their age, um, you know, their position in life over young people. Uh, and it's just unconscionable. It's criminal. And if the courts, you know, aren't going to change their laws and, and lean a little bit better in the direction of, of the victim more than the person who's being vilified, well, then you know what? The, the the court of public opinion is going to do that job. You mentioned at the end of your Times piece a conversation that you had with a woman, an old woman who had been molested since she was three years old by her father and had never told anyone. You were the first person that she had ever um, spoken about this with. So that must be um, just a really obviously incredibly fraud and and difficult conversation for that um for that woman but also you diana have been the recipient of so many of these stories from people because you've been so um you know brave about about sharing your experience what has that been like for you to be someone that people can confide in you know what it's um it, it there's some gratification to it it's difficult for me to hear someone in their 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s and talk about something, something heinous that happened to them all through their childhood, especially early, early childhood when they're absolutely defenseless and hear that they've gone their whole lives, you know, with this tragedy, you know, under their skin. And a lot of them are lawyers and judges and very successful people, but a lot of them are not in relationships and uh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start a national registry. I'm going to start the National Archive of Sexual Abuse. I'm going to be called Survivor Number One. And I bet you anything, we have more than a million who come in. And we're going to know just how big this epidemic is. Diana Nyad is a record-setting long-distance swimmer. Her op-ed, My Life After Sexual Assault, was published in the New York Times earlier this month. Diana, thank you so much for joining us. Stefan, Josh, June, thank you very much. You guys have a good day. June Thomas of Slate, thank you for coming on the segment. Thank you for giving me this opportunity to talk with the great Diana Nyad, Stefan. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Now it is time for After Balls, and we just spoke to Diana Nyad. One of the obstacles that she overcame on her mini marathon long distance swims was the jellyfish. There was a particular kind of jellyfish that would 
sting her on her swims between Cuba and Key West. That was the box jellyfish. This is not a very nice jellyfish to be stung by. Extremely painful and can be fatal to humans, according to Wikipedia. That seems like it should be avoided, Stefan. Yeah. (laughs) That's your advice. I don't like to swim with a box jellyfish. Yeah, I've been stung by jellyfish before. Really? Rookie mistake, swimming-wise. Not pleasant, um, but thankfully was not fatal, and I'd like to keep it that way. Stefan, what is your box jellyfish? Well, last week in the locker room speeches section of our cavalcade of whimsy, I played what I said was Newt Rockney's actual halftime speech in Notre Dame's 1928 game against Army. Fight, fight, fight. Go, 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 men. Uh, upon further review, it appears that while the speech is indeed of Rockney, it was recreated for the newsreel cameramen at some later date, and it might not be from that game at all. The clip I did not play was the win one for the Gipper speech as rendered in the 1940 film Newt Rockney All-American, which supposedly was from the 1928 Army game. Let's listen to Rockney talking about George Gipp, who had died eight years earlier of pneumonia while still at Notre Dame. The last thing he said to me, Rocky said... Sometime when the team is up against it and the brakes are beating the boys, tell them to go out there with all they got and win just one for the Gipper. I don't know where I'll be then, Rocky said. But I'll know about it. And I'll be happy. In this, in this pause here, where they're wheeling Rockney out of the locker room, even though he wasn't in a wheelchair in real life. Wait for it. But what are we waiting for? What are we waiting for, guys? And they all run out of the locker room. I bring this up again because Notre Dame on Saturday wore helmets and cleats designed to look like leather. And every player's jersey said Rockney on the back with parts of the recreated speech emblazoned on their shoulders. The unis are, in fact, pretty cool. You can get a jersey for just $109.99 from Notre Dame's official online store. Proceeds will not be used to pay players. But what they really represent was a century of marketing bullshit mythology that started with Rockney himself. Before dying in a plane crash in 1931, Rockney posted a 105-12-5 record in 13 seasons, during which attendance increased tenfold. And even though it's been busted over and over, first and best by Murray Sperber in his 1993 book, Shake Down the Thunder, from which I'm going to borrow heavily here, the myth of Rockney as the inspirational coach who turned boys into men and Notre Dame into a noble institution that does football the right way persists. Announcing the heritage uniforms. Notre Dame's website said that Rockney is, quote, the name that every Irish player, coach, and fan carries in their heart as they cheer along with the Notre Dame victory march and sway arm in arm during Notre Dame, our mother, end quote. 
In contrast to his image as St. Newt, Rockne was no better and possibly worse than other coaches in a time, like all times, of dubious ethics and open corruption in college sports. He offered gambling advice about games. He milked Notre Dame for cash. His annual compensation reached $75,000, a number no coach would match until Bear Bryant in the 1960s. And he chased sponsorships. There was a Rockne Studebaker model after he died until the moment of his death when he was on his way to Los Angeles to work on a movie about himself for which he was to receive 50 grand. Rockne recruited players who weren't students, including Gip, who purportedly called himself the, quote, finest freelance gambler ever to attend Notre Dame. In two of his four years, Gip received no grades and he was going to be expelled until Michigan, West Point, and Pitt started bidding for his services. In the movie, Rockney is shown throwing gamblers out of the locker room. Rockney dodged recruiting rules. He doled out jobs to players. He hired publicity agents. He routinely humiliated his players as less than he-men, and he basically bribed sports writers by hiring them, and he wasn't the only coach to do this at the time, hiring them to officiate games. After one game, a Chicago writer and friend named Walter Eckersall told Rockney that his backfield was in illegal motion on almost every play and should practice its timing, but he didn't call any penalties. After Rockney died, an autobiography was rushed out based on a series of stories in Collier's magazine written under Rockney's name, which attributed his drive to, quote, that traditional venturesomeness of the Norsemen, aided by infiltrations of Irish blood acquired when the earlier and hardier Vikings invaded Ireland looking for trouble and returned to Norway with Colleen's for wives. After the book was published, the writer asked Rockney's widow and a Notre Dame official to be acknowledged in future editions, they refused. Back to the possible fakeness of the Gipper speech in the movie version or in real life. One is that Rockney rarely gave locker room speeches, according to Sperber. One of his attributes was that he prepared players well, and then he let them play. The other is that the story was first told after the Army game by a New York Daily News sports writer named Francis Wallace. Wallace had been Rockney's student press intern during the Gip days and helped turn Notre Dame into a national team. So either Rockney had been saving the Gip speech for eight years, or he had made it up and fed it to Wallace, or Wallace burnished a nugget of a story. Or maybe he made it up himself. Or maybe it really happened. I doubt it, though. By the way, Wallace also came up with Fighting Irish as the nickname for the team. He didn't like fellow sports writers slandering Notre Dame with nicknames that noted how the football team spent more time on the road than on campus. Rambling Irish, Rockney's Rovers, Wandering Irish, Rockney's Ramblers. Sperber writes that Wallace first wanted a non-ethnic and non-nomadic nickname, and he came up with Blue Comets based on the team's blue uniforms and quick offense. Imagine how different things would be, Josh, if Notre Dame were the Blue Comets. I'm imagining it. I'm also remembering that I made a mistake in your... After all, last week when I said Catherine Hepburn was in his Girl Friday, when it was really was Rosalind it? Russell. Ah. Got to give Roz her uh, props. Yeah, yeah. Hepburn. And apologize to Catherine Hepburn. I'm sorry, everyone. Josh, what's your box jellyfish? Several years worth of tanking is finally paying off for the Philadelphia 76ers this season. They're over 500 at 8-7. and seven. 
and in playoff position as of the time we're recording this podcast. To the extent the Sixers are good, it's because of uh, Joel Embiid, the number three pick in the 2014 draft. He's averaging 23 points and 11 rebounds in just 29 minutes per game. Also, Ben Simmons, number one pick in 2016, nearly averaging a triple-double with 18 points, nine boards, eight assists. These guys are really good. And maybe Markel Fultz, this year's number one pick, will be good someday too once he has two operable shoulders. But hey, with draft picks, you win some, you lose some. Fewer picks uh, panned out back in the day. Teams lost a lot more because the NBA draft used to be a lot longer before it was shortened to two rounds in 1989. Back in 83, the draft lasted six hours. The Rockets started it by taking Ralph Sampson out of Virginia and the 76ers, the defending NBA champion at that point, 76ers, closed things out with the 228th pick. Uh, that was in the 10th round, and they selected Norman Horvitz. This pick was covered straight-facedly by the Associated Press. They noted that Horvitz had attended Philadelphia Pharmacy. The truth of the matter was that Horvitz was five foot ten, 49 years old, and had played intramural basketball at the Philadelphia College of Pharmacy, where he'd graduated in 1956. The reason he was drafted as Sports Illustrated documented in a squirt card item in July 1983 was that he was the medical director of Nutrisystem, a weight loss chain owned by Sixers owner Harold Katz. As Ira Burkow explained in the New York Times, Horvitz and Katz were poker buddies, and Katz conceived of the choice of Dr. Horvitz as a harmless prank among buddies, just a couple rich guys getting a couple yucks at the end of the NBA draft. Burkow strangely used his column as an opportunity to interview Horwitz, uh, who is an osteopath, about the NBA's problems with substance abuse. You know, when you're watching a game, you really don't think about the drug problem, and it's almost impossible to detect from the stands if someone is taking them, Horwitz told Burkow. And if their performance suffers, the team just gets a new player. They're not hurting me as much as they're hurting themselves. Nutrisystem, by the way, probably wasn't helping anyone either. Horvitz was credited as the co-creator of the Rapid Weight Loss Program, which featured instant calorie-controlled meals in a pouch. There is little scientific evidence, though, that Nutrisystem works as billed. And back in 1974, when Horvitz and Katz, the poker buddies, were operating the Shape Up Weight Control Center, they were touting the weight loss benefits of HCG, that's human chorionic gonadotropin. In 1995, the American Society of Bariatric Physicians reported that there is no scientific evidence that HCG is effective in the treatment of obesity. And last year, the American Medical Association said that the use of human chorionic gonadotropin for weight loss is inappropriate. So in conclusion, Dr. Norman Horvitz, not a great draft pick. Once the NBA figured out who Horvitz was, they declared the Sixers pick null and void. But this wasn't because Horvitz wasn't really a basketball player. It was because he'd graduated from college in 1956, 27 years before the draft, meaning he'd been out of school long enough to be a free agent. Shockingly, no other teams brought him in for a workout. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Ford. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. You should also check out Slate's brand new podcast about technology, society, and power. It's called If Then, 
and it's hosted by April Glazer and Will Aremis, with newsmaking interviews of key tech industry figures, fascinating academics, and top tech journalists. They explore not only how the technology that's shaping our world works, but the ideas, ideologies, incentives, and biases that underlie them. And guess what? They do not always agree. Get new episodes every Thursday at slate.com slash if then. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. is ryan and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day couldn't we just to make up for things like sitting in traffic doing the dishes counting your steps you know all the mundane stuff that is why i'm such a big fan of chumba casino chumba casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day a little actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.